Welcome to Sidebar, the podcast about law, politics, and society. We're your hosts. I'm Brianne Schuster. And I'm Joshua Turnham. We've been absent for a little while, but we're happy to be back with a very special episode on immigration. Today, we are happy to welcome Danielle Farrell to Sidebar. Danielle is an immigration defense attorney in Seattle. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Danielle. Welcome to Sidebar. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am very happy to be here with you guys. Um... Yes, as she said, my name is Danielle Farrell. I am currently an immigration attorney at a law firm downtown. Um, I have downtown been, Seattle. Downtown, just to, just no, to downtown Seattle. I'm sorry <laughs> for all those non Seattle livers. Um, I have been involved in immigration since 2008, um, either paralegaling or other things. But after passing the bar, I was brought on as an associate attorney to a small firm which focuses primarily on defending immigrants in removal proceedings, but also dabbling in some of the happier uniting families stories. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for coming on as our very first guest for Sidebar. We're very happy to have you here. And we are going to be having actually two parts to our immigration discussion. Uh, First, we're going to talk a little bit about the system of immigration as it currently stands and some of the problems with it, as well as debunking some of the myths or stereotypes about that. But before we get started on that topic, uh, we want to talk a little bit about current events. Normally, Bran and I each share a news story that caught our eye, but today we've decided to focus on just one news story, the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, because that is going to have ramifications on the uh, legal profession and immigration. Um, yeah, and immigration <laughs> specifically. Uh, I know it was. It came as I think a shock to everybody. Absolutely. That he, you, you know, all of a sudden here he's dead. I mean, he was not a young man. He was early eighties, I think. Uh, I think it, no, and you could be right. I thought he was even in his seventies, but seventy-nine I, years old. Oh, was it in the okay. middle. <laughs> I, I knew it was somewhere right around eighty, but I, I wasn't sure. Um, but I know that. There, it immediately caused an uproar both on the left and the right and uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell immediately said the that President Obama should not appoint or should not nominate any new uh, person to be the new justice on the Supreme right. Court which would leave the, the court um, down one justice for an entire year at least. Absolutely and what's so... Um, interesting to me personally is the ramifications of what that means for basically every decision that was before the court this year as well. Um, my understanding at least is that every decision that didn't, um, that he had an opinion in, but which wasn't publicly decided, so which they haven't issued an order publicly yet for, is his opinion is essentially null and void. So if the the opinion's not been issued yet. That's what I mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they haven't. Yeah, if it hasn't been issued yet. Um, you can't publish a dead person's opinion. <laughs> right, which is which is interesting. So even if he had, you know, written it up or had right. an opinion. Or right. Clerk or, had written <laughs> yeah, his clerk wrote it. Um, and it was really clear how he was going to rule that it's not going to matter anymore. And there were okay. so many important cases before the Supreme Court this year that... Well, and think, so many more in, well, in the coming weeks. Well, absolutely, absolutely. That I think people were... At least expecting now, you know, you know, you're looking for an eight um, justice system, but cases that were, you know, previously argued and now their outcome could totally change. Um, I think that's 
that could be a really interesting thing to see. So yeah, absolutely having that already. So it's basically like you have no nominee or you don't have a 9% court for over a year if you include all the cases that are going to come before the court this year and are probably just going to go before them again if they're 4-4. Four, four. So um, President Obama has not nominated anybody yet, but I've heard that it could be any day now, uh, maybe this weekend, so that by the time this episode goes up, we could have a nominee. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be really interesting to see what actually happens if the Republican leadership does insist on being obstructionist. <laughs> Definitely. And because they're obviously angry because replacing Scalia, who really pushed the court to the right, uh, with replacing him with even a moderate is mm-hmm. going to have huge effects on decisions coming in the future. Definitely. And I, if you look at the uh, nominations that President Obama has already made, he has been quite progressive in his choices um, in certain respects and, and not in other respects. Sure. In that, if you look at the overall makeup of the court and ignore certain um, factors, they all actually look very much the same. They have very similar systems. They're appellate court, uh, federal appellate court judges mm-hmm. um, went to the same set of, you know, they all oh, the went to Harvard or, yeah. or Yale. And I mean, and that's been that way for and it, decades. Um, yeah, that's true. But histor- I mean, that's, that's definitely a more modern trend. That if you looked, mm-hmm. if you look more than beyond a, a couple of decades, there was much more diversity. You would have seen, um, not you know, trial court judges. Where, when was the last time you saw a trial court judge nominated yeah. to the Supreme Court, or or a state Supreme Court uh, judge? Um, uh, well, in Washington, <laughs> it's actually happened very recently. <laughs> Well, not uh, but... <laughs> nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. No, no. That, which is what I'm talking about. Oh, right. Sorry, I thought you said the state <laughs> Supreme Court. No, no. I mean, a state Supreme Court judge being nominated oh, to I the understand. U.S. Understand. Supreme Court. Sure. I mean, what better qualifications would you need than having already been a Supreme Court for judge for or justice for a, a state court? Anyway, uh, I think it's been really interesting to see the reaction of people knowing that Scalia was weird best friends with Justice Ginsburg uh, and seeing how many people are coming out and saying, oh, um, his legacy will live for hundreds of years and he was the most significant, important Supreme Court justice in decades and uh, really overlooking how he, he was a complete racist and asshole. <laughs> and, and, yeah. people, and I've even seen people, oh, in in person, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't care. Great. <laughs> because as a justice, he was a jerk. And, yeah, I read that about blatant his... Blatant racist. Yeah, absolutely. In his career before a justice, too. I know there were a lot right. of students from, I think, University of Chicago, where he was a professor. I, yeah, I've read a little with, about that. With papers and articles since his death, um, kind of detailing the same, the same exact line and mentality and everything. Well, I'm excited to see what happens when the when a nomination actually comes uh, out. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of speculation about who that might be, and it would be really nice to see if Obama continues his trend of appointing non-white men <laughs> to, yeah. to, to the court. I'm kind of rooting for Loretta Lynch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, I think I have. I have. A, I'd put a dollar down on her as the nominee. Huh. Okay. That would be a good. That would be an interesting nominee. Um. Would be a 
the confirmation proceedings actually got going would be a really interesting yeah. one for sure. Well, we'll we'll talk about it when it comes up. <laughs> yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm I know a lot of people on the left are really excited about having a left majority Supreme Court. Definitely, and even just to have yeah the opportunity and the discussion to bring that about will be really exciting. And I could go on forever about yeah. So let's Justice <laughs> Scalia, but let's let's get to the the topic at hand. Fantastic. So, Danielle, we were kind of hoping that one of the first things as two attorneys who aren't quite as familiar with the immigration system, um, if you could kind of just give us a little bit of some general information and sort of dispel some of the common myths that people have about the immigration system and people that are immigrating to the United States. Um, Yes, I would love to. But first, I'm actually going to just put a little plug in for the Supreme Court kind of fiasco that's going on and how it will also affect immigration. Oh, please do. Because <laughs> um, obviously being in mostly circles of immigration lawyers, that's all I hear about is like how Scalia's death is going to affect that. And the main thing is the... There are some cases coming up the soon. The DAPA case mm-hmm. that oh, okay. is coming up is the one that's supposed to be decided this summer. And a lot of immigration lawyers think with the Republicans being obstructionists, it's not going to come to the court at all until next year. In which case, if a Republican gets nominated because it's executive action, they'll get rid of it. Which so, can they can they delay? I mean, if the court has to make a decision on whether or not they take the case, right? I mean, they already decided to take it, and it's set right. for July or August, I believe, of this summer. But I guess there's some fear that with this happening, it's somehow going to get delayed. They're not going to get right. a decision. Well, if there's gonna go wrong, if there's an eight panel Supreme Court. Um, and there's a tie decision. It's four to four. Uh, oh. There is there is a a decision. Um, oh no, sorry. There is there's no technical Supreme Court right. decision. Um, and the lower court appellate, or I guess the appellate court ruling um, stands. But there's no precedent, so that it could be brought up again. You know, in a, I, in a future. And year. I think that's what some of them in the circles have been mentioning. Is I think. To my understanding, as it stands right now, is it is four to four without Scalia. So so that's why they're concerned. Um, And what is the, what is, I guess, what is the underlying case and what was the appellate court decision that might um, stand for the next year? I'm a little bit fuzzy on some of this because it actually has nothing to do with the actual document. Right. (laughs) I'm not surprised. Um, um, So if you remember a while ago, we had DACA, which was the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Which worked out great for immigrants. Which, which um, was done in response to the wave, huge wave of yeah, minors um, coming. And it was response to the, the dreamers. And so that kind of went, it went well. It got implemented. Lots of people benefit from it. So many of my clients get DACA. They love it. Good kids, bright futures can stay here. Um, but then Obama decided to do something similar for parents of citizen children, um, which was DAPA. However, the Texas, I believe it was Texas Supreme Court or the Texas court halted it and said, you can't do this. And their grounds, like I said, I'm not 100% sure, but it dealt with something that was strictly procedural. Um, And so it actually is coming down to whether or not Texas has the right to do that and whether or not he's overstepping his bounds with state rights. So it actually has nothing to do with just the general validity of DAPA, but whether or not it would impact it. Um, It'll come down to federalism, which... Generally, the right-leaning justices are more strong on federalism, and the left ones are a little bit less so. But 
but not necessarily. <laughs> uh, but so last... It, yeah, it can, there can be interesting decisions there. Yeah, so like last what they were hearing is it was kind of in the middle right now. Since mm-hmm. I was Scalia's death, everybody was like, we don't know what's going to happen. Right. And when they announced the decision to be made in the summer, there were so many immigrants calling in being like, we hear it's going to pass, get us ready, like what can we do? So it would be very devastating to all these people who really like wow. bank on it. Depended on it, absolutely. So if it either doesn't pass or it gets pushed out and they have to redo it. So anyway, Scalia's, uh, Scalia's death also messing up other things. Worse <laughs> um, <laughs> for nothing. But okay, um, general overview of immigration, which is... I mean, it shouldn't take me yeah. more than two seconds. Right, right? I mean, <laughs> obviously, you can do everything online, guys. I guess I think, you know, some. what are some of the common things that, you know, we hear? I mean, that I think one thing that we hear a lot, right, is that um, immigrants are dangerous, right? It's dangerous, and they're taking jobs, and it's unsafe to not have a really strong border. So, um, yes, all true stereotypes, but um, I I like to think about it as, I don't like to think of immigrants as a separate group of people. They are people like you and me. So there are some immigrants that do commit crimes. There are some immigrants who do bad things. Um, They're just like me and you. They're immigrants that are assholes. (laughs) So I don't think it, I don't like, I don't like groups that either criminalize all of them or say all of them are good. They're people, like everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I have lots of clients that have committed crimes right they're just like me too <laughs> right horrific things that happen um mm-hmm. and so but statistically they commit less crimes than american citizens obviously just because of numbers and also because to tell the truth people who come here are trying their hardest not to get in trouble they have they have a big incentive <laughs> they do. to not encounter law enforcement no i mean most of my clients have you know maybe a few parking tickets and stuff like that but they're just they're trying to do doesn't? everything possible. <laughs> that's exactly. And that's kind of the hypocrisy of the system is, you know, you can be a rich white male and have five DUIs and still be running a, co- a corporation. But if you have one DUI as an immigrant, you can be deported. So, um, yes, it's a silly myth. But I think you see people like the immigrant in California who shot the woman. Um, there's another one, I think, in New York. And people just see that and they grab on. And they're like, see, this is proving our point. Immigrants are horrible. Um in terms of like danger at the border um yeah i mean to be totally honest there are a lot of dangerous people that come through the border but they're not the people that the u.s is targeting sure, yeah absolutely. if that makes sense right no i, um, I totally I, and you're preaching to the choir yeah. so. <laughs> like um conspiracy theories aside um because i don't think they are conspiracy theories the u.s's government is very much involved in a lot of the drug and arms trade that goes across the border in, so in in what way is the um we did at least at one point supply a lot of weapons that are now being used by um especially central american gangs Mm -hmm. um we've actually there have been some pleas by like the el salvadorian government honduran government please tell the u.s to stop sending these weapons because the gangs are using like ak-47s and things like that which should not be used um and i think too i mean which perhaps this is way oversimplifying it but if you're bringing I mean, the argument that people are smuggling in drugs and doing all these things, right? It's because there's also a demand for it in the U.S. It's and not then, like U.S. Well, it's not like just immigrants are buying from immigrants across no, the border. And, it's, you know, U.S. citizens that are demanding these. And that's where you get into the whole war on drugs and right, how that kills right. that. Um, which actually, I've, I've, I personally believe that 
like the U.S. focusing so much on terrorism from the Middle East, I think the people that are south of our border in terms of the cartels and the MS and 18 gangs are much more dangerous. But the U.S. actually has a financial stake in those countries, exactly. so they do not necessarily get involved. Um, and I mean, there are tunnels that go under between the countries oh, yeah. to the drugs. Like there, um, so yes, there so, are. Dangerous so building a wall is not going to prevent the no. The, I the, actually the, the tunnels from get bringing. I have well, a, them, <laughs> I have a client right now who's detained. Who's like, I can tell you three bars in on the border that have tunnels going into the U.S. right now. Wow! But I was like plugging my ears. Don't, like, don't, <laughs> no, I don't. Please, please don't. <laughs> yeah, I was like, um, and I mean. There are, like, obviously there are criminals that come across the border, um, super crafty. They're now sticking bags of cocaine under tourist cars, and then they pick them up at a gas station on the other side of the border. Like, um, but the U.S. isn't targeting these people. The U.S. Right. is targeting people who are fleeing from danger. Um, but as I explained today, my client, who lied about smuggling, um, I think, like, he is a such a small percentage of people who are coming in, but the government focuses on them, so... Absolutely. Yeah, they say so, let's build a wall, but what's that going to do? So for somebody who is uh, Central or South American who wants to come to the United States, uh, what is what is the actual process for that if they're not involved in, in drug running? I mean, um, why, why do they have to avoid you know the legitimate border crossings? Or well, you know, why is that dangerous for them? So actually, if you're involved in drug running but being forced to drug run, you can get legal status in the U.S., if you can show it and prove it, because they consider it trafficking. Because um, a lot of gangs do force women to be mules, they force young right, boys to right. traffic things over. So if you are involved and it's not of your volition, that can actually help you. Um, I'll just do a really quick backup. For anybody who wants to come to the U.S., you can't just come. Um, you have to have somebody in the U.S. to sponsor you who is a family member. You have to have a work sponsor you. Um, there's some other little other ways... Um, like being victims of crimes, but principally what you're probably talking about is asylum and refugees. Um, but the reason most people don't just cross anymore um, is because the this I just heard as of like two days ago, um, the Department of Homeland Security, who runs all of the deportations, the offices, have basically issued a new policy mandate to fight tooth and nail every single, what they call an arriving alien case. So we have a law which says that if you come to the border and you ask for asylum, you're supposed to be allowed in to fight for your case because the U.S. is part of, you know, the Geneva Convention and all these other things. It's supposed to let you come in. They're supposed to not send you back to your harm. The government has recently freaked out about all of the arriving aliens. So instead of letting these people come, they're doing everything possible to let them out, so, which is why people sneak across. And I definitely, I know that we're going to talk about asylum in our part two. No, I'm super, I'm really glad that you mentioned it. I just say that because I, I think it's really interesting and I don't want to cut you off on, on that interesting topic. Um, but for people that are interested, listen to part two. Um, I am kind of curious as far as the immigrant population, um, what does that actually look like? I think that we talk a lot when we talk about immigration, um, and I, don't, I guess when I say we, I don't mean the royal we, like the three of us, but... Um, as as a country, we talk about immigration, and it's very focused on Mexican immigrants and Central American immigrants. Um, but obviously, or I mean, it seems in my mind that's, you know, is that really the population that is immigrating the most frequently to the U.S.? And are there more barriers for that specific population to get here versus other populations? Um, 
yes to your questions. <laughs> um, so it just makes sense. People immigrate to countries that are closest to them. So like the refugee crises we're seeing in Europe um, are obviously, you're not going to be seeing Mexicans flee there because it's extremely <laughs> it's hard to get there. a little hard to get, to get to. Okay, okay. Um, this is a big ocean in the world. Yeah, I mean, you just you can cross it if you want. Um, if the U.S. keeps up its immigration policies, they might start going that way. Um, so people from Central America and Mexico are the larger of the population. That's just because it is easiest for them to get there. Um, the U.S. does have huge hubs of Somali immigrants, Eastern African immigrants. Like anywhere you go, you can find a population. And a lot of times they tend to go where they are. So Seattle has one of the largest Ethiopian populations in the U.S. because of they just they find they're there. They all come. Um sure. But in terms of Central and Central Americans and Mexicans, they're probably the largest, which is why they're seen as the biggest threat. Um, because it is, and a lot of them, clients have personally told me, if they get sent back, they just come back. Which is why I think the U.S. is more afraid of them. If you deport somebody who's from Sri Lanka, they're probably not going to just jump right back over because right. it's such a hard trip. But deporting people from Central and South America. Don't get me wrong, it is an extremely dangerous journey. Oh, I think, no, like, absolutely. I don't yeah. think the government appreciates that, what they have to go through to come here. But they just see they're going to go, they're just going to come back. So, to answer your other question, yes, it is much harder for their cases to get granted. Um, I would say if you're from Mexico or any of the Central American countries, you have like an 80% chance less of getting granted if you're from some other country just because of the country you're from the judges will not tell you that of course <laughs> but um it's almost pretty much guaranteed like you have to be the most extreme torture family killed burned like gang sending you heads in a box to win whereas like you know from some eastern european country christian fear of getting persecuted nothing's really happened right. to you before yeah. you can have asylum so yeah. so <laughs> well can you can you talk a little about why Central and you know Mexicans and Central Americans actually are coming over because I think that yes. most people yeah that would be helpful most to people too. don't know wh- why they come or there, there's a lot of misunderstandings and the reality from my understanding is that it's more displacement rather than any other reason that a lot of people uh, report to put onto these immigrants um, yes so almost most of my job primarily involves research of why people are fleeing from those countries. Um, I will just start out and say the U.S. is the cause of most of it. Um, <laughs> Unsurprising. That's what I was expecting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, a lot of our policies from the 70s and 80s and 90s have caused what is now our problem. Specifically talking about war on drugs and our hand in regime change throughout yes. Central and South America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, us arming various rebel groups. And then now their guns are out there, us sending back gang members, which everybody, you know, most people know that is how the MS-18 or the MS-13 and M-18 have formed, um, is because of the U.S. Can you t- just tell um, what those what those groups are oh, for people that may not know? So, and actually I was um, researching this the other day. So the, M, the M-18 and the MS-13 were gangs that formed originally in Los Angeles or in the area in California. Okay. So they were actually formed here first. Oh, interesting. Um, one of them was primarily with, um, of Mexican gang members, and one was one of the first, like, multinational gangs. But the U.S. started deporting them, just, like, left and right back to their countries, and they formed the gangs in their countries. Um, so we are actually responsible for these gangs. 
literally no way around that one. Um, Just because we we picked them up and moved them somewhere else, we, they're like, still genius. Yeah, and then when people go back, I mean, they still recruit up here. They and, recruit down there. And MS thirteen, correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the largest gangs in our in our own country, and it it's it's coast to coast because I know there were MS thirteen people in my high school in Maryland. It's actually you can look online at maps of where they're at, and it's like terrifying the territory that they control and actually just recently they started taking over mexican cartel drug routes so they're actually now working a lot in mexico to take drugs up to the u.s so they're like really so and just kind of like (laughs) cartel kind of by definition is a giant large organized crime unit right like the mafia Mm -hmm. right so they they do high level stuff they get into politics they have lots of money they're super organized gangs generally are seen as Smaller groups, petty crimes, lots of violence, not very organized. More more grown out of people being poor and desperate. Exactly. Um, They call them like maras a lot. The M. Mara is like the, what they use in El Salvador a lot for just like a a gang, like a, just a little thing. Um, But the MS-13 and the M-18 started out as like smaller little maras, like Mara Salvatrucha, right? Mm -hmm. But they're so big now that these are like full on organizations. And the El Salvador Supreme Court in August of last year, declared them terrorist groups. Wow. Which I think would be, I think the U.S. needs to do that. I think all the countries need to declare these groups. Like, I mean, they are so powerful and they are so dangerous and it's, they should be called what they are, but a lot of countries, once you call them that, you have to. So, um, but anyway, we created these gangs, we created these problems. Um, So primarily from Honduras, uh, El Salvador and Guatemala, which they call the Central Triangle. Um, these three countries have some of the absolute highest homicide rates in the world, in the entire world, um, mostly by gangs. And now police officers who are violating human rights trying to catch gang members, killing civilians, thinking that they're gang members. So people from there are just fleeing. When 2014, when we saw that huge influx of un- unaccompanied minors, it's going to happen again because a truce between the two main gangs broke in 2015. Oh which was really bad. Um, I can't even begin to tell you like how bad some of the stuff is in these countries, but it's just... So that influx of immigrants you're talking about, it's going to happen again. Um, but that's the main reason the three are... Those three people from... Or those three countries, people are fleeing up here. Mexico is just that entire country has no infrastructure. <laughs> um, the whole thing is falling apart. The cartels run almost all of it. Um, I won't get into too much of it, right now but the cartels control a lot of the exports mm-hmm. so a lot of things that you buy are actually cartel businesses i feel like we were just talking about how much we love avocados yep, and, and how yeah. <laughs> for mexico not good limes yeah. for mexico not good <laughs> I, I think it was actually a uh, another podcast that i was listening to that said um that there's no such thing as a conflict-free avocado they're bad um unless your neighbor has them on a tree that you can just go pick one like chances yeah. are um but so, in a, like, in the sense, it is displacement. Um, extortion is an extremely big thing. The courts do not care about it. They think they call extortion the equivalent of petty crime. They're like, extortion happens everywhere. Everybody deals with it. But, I mean, extortion the is... The U.S. courts or... Mexican? Yeah, the U.S. immigration mm-hmm. courts. Um, but, I mean, these gang members come. They ask for money. If you don't pay, they kill your family. They burn your house. Like, it's not... It's a big deal, but the courts are like... It's just, it happens to everybody. All of you, yeah. Wow. Um, And gang recruitment is huge. And they target young people, young men, young women so much, which is where all the young people come up. 
Um, but pretty much, like, it is, in my opinion, it is a war zone. I don't think anybody should be sent back there. Um, El Salvador homicide rates are higher right now than in the Civil War, um, which was huge. So that's why people are fleeing, and it should be no surprise. And it's not to come up here and make anger babies, which is just, <laughs> I mean, that's a, one of the worst arguments I hear. It's not to come steal our jobs. Um, a lot of people that I talk to don't want to leave their homes. Their no, family's down there, their culture's down there, but it's either be killed or come up here. So when it comes to jobs and, and economy, do you know, maybe it's not the case as much now as it maybe was in, in the 90s, but my understanding is that after NAFTA was passed, <laughs> there was huge influx of immigrants because of, because of NAFTA um, that uh, changing the way the U.S. economy worked and changing the way Mexican and Central American economies worked, which made lots of poor farmers lose their jobs and and but then there were people in the u.s recruiting immigrant workers and so is that is that accurate or does that still happen so i'll preface this with um employment immigration is not my like specialty and forte okay. um but what you're saying to my knowledge yes was correct then um the issue now so after 9-11 like everything changed right with immigration mm -hmm. with working um and I find actually employment and immigration one of the most interesting topics in politics for Democrats and Republicans. Oh, good, because that was my next question. <laughs> because it's, it's actually something that Republicans and Democrats tend to agree on. Yeah. Um, so, like, um, for example, and I'll just, you know, to bring up our current political candidates. No, please do, because um, I, I wanted to ask about that. So it'll, it'll segue um, selfishly into my question. To my knowledge, and I don't know all the all the candidates' positions on this. I actually only know, I do know that Bernie Sanders um, was against one of these bills, another one of the Republican ones I can't think about, but we have something called like a like a work program, right? Mm -hmm. Where you bring unskilled laborers in for a certain amount of time to do work. Um, there are other work programs that are for very skilled people, like, and there are so many things that a company is supposed to do, such as prove you can't give this to an American worker, make them have the same salary. Like, there are supposed to be safeguards so that, you don't have, quote, immigrants stealing American mm -hmm. jobs. But these, the work visa program, which does bring in, quote, unskilled laborers for a certain amount of time, sure. um, that is the biggest one where people say it is stealing American jobs. And that is something that Bernie Sanders was against, allowing that, and a lot of other people are allowing that. And so you kind of start to have this divide where you're all for immigrant rights, but when it comes to potentially harming U.S. workers' rights, you kind of start to be like, oh, maybe not. Um, so I find that really interesting, especially from a political point of view, that you can be very pro letting immigrants in, mm -hmm. but the minute that you think they're going to take your jobs, you're like, oh, but American jobs. Um, so I think it's something that needs to be found as a balance. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that anyway. Um, but I mean, um, I, I'll just speak for my client base. No, please. Most of them pay taxes. Almost all oh, of right. them pay taxes, right? Well, and so especially so in Washington, we don't even have an income tax. No, so, so it's like... Most of them pay their taxes. Most of them pay indoor systems and don't get anything back. Um, most of them just are extremely hard workers. They, you know, do all the things that we don't want to do. Um, I would, you know, they're not sitting here, you know, sucking off Uncle Sam's teeth for nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when you say that they're saying that you're saying that they pay taxes beyond paying like sales tax, which you're they pay to their pay, income taxes. Do they, so people actually file their mm -hmm. their. Um, Yes. Income tax every 
April and... Mm -hmm. There's something called an ITIN number, which you do not need a social to file a tax. Okay. So, yeah, most of mine have their tax records, and actually a lot of immigration judges will require you to do so before they grant a case. So a lot of my... I'm not saying they file them correctly. I see lots and lots of mistakes. Well, I don't know. But I'm they, nervous to file mine <laughs> but, um, year anyway. Yeah, and there are, yes, there are some immigrants that try to add, like, 700 cousins from Mexico as mm -hmm. dependents. But, like, for the most part, they are... I mean, they have better work ethic. They, you know, do more. They pay their taxes. They are not stealing jobs, in my opinion, from anybody. Um, when California tried to pass the E-Verify for all their migrant workers, it got stopped, luckily, because... Everybody was like, the U.S. will run out of food if you do this. So I think... Because there just wouldn't be enough migrant workers anymore. There wouldn't. They would all be yeah. unemployed. And we, um, we rely on California farms for a lot of our food. But it's interesting, like, if we're talking about Obama's policy versus Bush's, um, Bush's employment policy was to attack employers, right? Um, or was to attack employees. So he would raise. I was going to say... He was very popular <laughs> for his, like, going into factories, raiding things. Right, right. Um, under Obama, you're not supposed to do that. ICE is not supposed to conduct raids. Not saying they don't, but they're not supposed to. Obama tried to punish the employers. Um, so, you know, they're supposed to go after anybody who's employing an illegal immigrant. So, like, you decide which is actually worse. Um, you know. <laughs> no, I, and I, and I don't know if this is perhaps, like, not incredibly um, relevant to what we've just been talking about, but I do wonder, you know, in talking about a lot of different fronts in which immigration has been targeted, right? It's the criminals, quote unquote, versus they're stealing jobs. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of different rationales kind of communicated throughout history. Right now, I'm seeing that there, or I feel, I mean, maybe you guys would disagree, I think that there's um, kind of this focus on it's okay, you know, on really like the the people that are doing the bad stuff, right? The criminals. I have a lot of problems with that rhetoric for a number of reasons. Um, but what I'm also wondering if you could talk about kind of is the difference between you know the messaging that perhaps the Democratic Party is using versus the Republican Party and how that's kind of been used in the election cycle. And I'd also be interested in knowing. You know, we talk a lot, you kind of mentioned um, that Sanders had, you know, not been in support of this certain bill. And I think we often think of, like, Democrats are really in favor of immigration reform and the Republicans are really not in favor. Um, and I think that a lot of, you know, things have happened under the Obama administration where people have said he's way too progressive, while at the same time he's conducting these kind of unprecedented immigration raids against families and so I'm just kind of wondering if you could help shed some light that was a very long yeah. and complicated question but what um no and actually I think a lot of it like starting of how they use it in the like election cycle and how different parties yeah. use it. a lot of it I think you can use DACA as an example of how that happened so that's like Obama's big immigration legacy right this basically allowed undocumented children who were brought here before the age of 16 completed high school with some other requirements, mm -hmm. you know, not committing crimes, to essentially then have a work permit to stay here, um, to use, like, state financial aid, federal financial aid, um, you know, as long as they don't commit any crimes. That originally started as the DREAM Act, which would have given undocu undocumented youth a pathway to citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of misconceptions, a lot of people think that's what DACA still is. Um, that's why a lot of, there are immigrants who come from other countries thinking that that is still what it is. Um, so that would be an area Obama compromised. There was no way, like, the Dream Act was going to pass. Um, there was not a, enough political Which I, th fund. I think he, I, my understanding was he thought he could get it. Right. And, and then he, it just, yeah, it, it he had collapsed. To, right. 
So, I mean, when you're arguing about politicians compromising in our very, very, very bipartisan system, you know, you can ask, is it, a, you know, was it good enough that Obama then compromised? Because now you do have all these kids that do actually have something. Oh, absolutely. Um, and maybe he didn't go for the full gust, but maybe he would never have got it, like, got right. anything. Um, but I think that there's still this idea that, like, DACA itself and then any predecessor is just going to mean a pathway to citizenship. And that's the thing I think you hear the most from Republicans that they're afraid of. Is it like pathway to citizenship? And the way they see it is they see it as rewarding bad behavior, which you see in the criminal system a lot when they're like... Yes, and that's... <laughs> yeah. Um, which they're not coming... So, yes, entering the country without documents is technically a federal crime. I don't think it should be. A lot of people don't think it should be. Like... You are, as a person, not an illegal entity, um, you know, so you're not, quote, rewarding a crime. You know, you are just... When you created the crime. <laughs> right, so. yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a status offense, not... It is, so it's a, like... You know, um, I, I don't, what's the opposite of a status offense? But it it'll, it yeah. only has to do with you cross this invisible line, therefore you're a criminal. Exactly, and so... Um, Currently, right now, I'm going to be very, uh, like, completely honest. I've heard the Republicans talk more about immigration than I've heard Democrats talk about. Yeah, and I know we've talked yeah. to, we've discussed that too, which is why I'm kind of... Yeah, it's, which is, um, I, I think, personally, that the Democrats might be feeling very comfortable in the Democratic Party's position with immigration, that they feel they don't sure, need to talk about it. Yeah, anymore. at least during the primary. Right, because and they're like, oh, sense, immigrants, but... you know that we got you. Like, we did DACA. We're going to try to pass a DAPA. We're looking for all these other things. So I think that they are not focusing on it as much because I think that they assume Democrats are, or immigrants are going to vote Democratic, assuming they can vote. Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think that that's a super smart decision. I think they should still talk about it. But my, my understanding is, is that uh, Hispanic voters actually turn out in pretty decent numbers relative to perhaps other populations is that i don't have any numbers to back that up though do you know if that's um, true at all i've um i don't have numbers i can tell you when i talk to my clients they seem way more politically involved than mm -hmm. other like and i think it's because like you said um the u.s there's just this idea that immigrants are just hispanic and Latino. you know that's not true um but so i think that they feel that they have a bigger stake um, the laws target Hispanics and Latinos more. Um, racism in the immigration system is definitely more towards Hispanics and Latinos. Um, you know, you say you get pulled over for being black, like you get pulled over for being Mexican by immigration, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah. Um, so they do turn out in a lot of bigger numbers, but so do you get, so remember when in California the immigrant shot the woman on the pier? Yeah. And there was this whole controversy about sanctuary cities. Um, Oh, because a lot of, uh, sorry, I didn't no. go on, um, but I, because there's a debate right now, right, that yeah, again. cities, because, well, I only know because, um, or not only know, but Wisconsin apparently is one of the states that has these quote-unquote sanctuary um, cities, and they're trying to pass a law in the Wisconsin legislature right now, essentially saying, like, I mean, a lot of anti-immigrant, anti-Latino, anti, you know, um, people of color bills, um, but there's been a lot of protests right now in the state, so that's kind of only my, my limited familiarity. Well, DHS but. just put through a policy which is now allowing DHS offices to transfer immigrants out of sanctuary cities. Uh, so it all where? came at the same time. You can transfer an immigrant to any detention facility, pretty oh, much. From, oh, so from yeah. one detention 
Yeah, because if you get out and you're in a sanctuary city, or they're not supposed to report you as part of the thing. The city's supposed to take you in, not supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though there's supposed to be no communication between the police and ICE, of course, there is. right. But uh, and the, I'm wondering well, why, why is there supposed to be no communication between police and ICE? Because they're separate federal, like they're not supposed to have to do with each other. They're not supposed to work right. together. They're not supposed to be giving each other information. It's not the state's or the city's jurisdiction to be handing over immigrants. Like, they're not even supposed to touch that. We all know that's not true. What's what's the result of that cooperation that's not supposed to be happening? Uh, Basically, um, and I have a lot of clients who this is unfortunate, um, clients driving taillights out, get pulled over a police officer, police officer sees, driver's license expired. Clients taken into just the police station, right? Police officer goes over to a phone, calls ICE, and says, hey, I think this guy's illegal. Ice calls up, looks him up, wow. finds he's illegal. Ice comes and detains him. Yeah, that's awesome. what I'm talking about. That is not police officers pull immigrants over all the time on suspicion of being illegal, and they'll make them wait until ice comes. And I think uh, for me, that's not super surprising working in the criminal yeah. law context. <laughs> yeah, but I was like you guys should know. No, right. but I think that's a really important um, thing to touch on. And I, I guess just kind of dovetailing off of that, if you could just kind of walk us through. So let's say you come in, you're um, undocumented for, you know, whatever reason, um, because it's impossible probably for you to get citizenship. And so you get pulled over, right? Like, what does that system, I mean, what does the system actually look like for someone that wants to come over? Um, what are their, you know, how easy is it for them to get citizenship? And once they do get in kind of trouble, I guess, I mean, for lack of a better word, what does that look like for them? How are they immediately detained? Are they having to, you know, when did they get their criminal trial or their, sorry, their immigration <laughs> yeah. trial? What does that kind of just in a really simple so, way, how does that happen? Um, like really simply, you have immigrants in two groups when they're getting to that system. Okay. One called arriving aliens and one called present without admission or um, inspection. So arriving aliens are the ones that are caught at the border. When you're caught at the border, you are automatically placed into detention facility. Um, you have pretty much no rights. You can't get a bond for six months. Um, it's, like, not awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are already in the U.S., let's say you've had a family here, you work in for 10 years, either you have a DUI or something bad happens, then you get placed in detention again. The two systems work a little bit differently. Um, but basically, you would get – you, and then ICE can come to your house. Uh, they can raid you. They can hang outside your door. Again, they should have warrants. They don't most of the time. Um, immigrants didn't know their rights, so they don't know what to ask for and they don't know what to look for. And just to cover, immigrants generally do have Fourth Amendment rights um, against uh, unwarranted searches and seizures. They is that, only or have, is that limited? They only have Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights so far that the Supreme Court has held. Most um, circuit courts hold that your Fourth Amendment has to be an egregious violation. It's like um, it's a pretty high standard. That you have to show. So yes, technically you do have Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights. Um, Which the the Fourth Amendment search and seizure rights have already been eroded so much over the last ten, fifteen years. So it's not a surprise to see that they're even looser when it comes to immigrants and immigration. There's yeah, um, and then you have to weigh it against the government's interest, DHS interest. So if you're somebody with a long criminal history conviction, they're probably not going to find for you because. Um, you know, they'll say you have that. So, you know, if you're an attorney, what you should do is you should always first ask how they were apprehended to see if you have any ways to argue constitutional issues, right? 
Um, but you get placed into a detention center, which are not jails, according to the law. <laughs> and, and how many of these are privately run and how many of them are government All run? of them are privately run. Every, oh, I didn't, I knew mm-hmm. some of them were. I didn't know that the every single one of them The company was. that is the biggest one here in the Pacific Northwest is called Geo. So if you see a bus that has Geo on the back of it, they're transporting detainees. <laughs> and the, I know, and, well, I don't remember all of the. Maybe you can actually tell us. I don't know why I'm trying to say. I know the CC, CCO is one, right? The Corrections yeah. Corporation of America or CCA, and, yeah. and and Geo Group are the two largest private CCA, that's okay. private jail and detention center yeah. corporations. Geo runs a lot of them here. Yeah, um, it's oh no, I'm no. sorry. No. I, I've just uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been to a few, and it was a really fascinating experience because it was exactly like what I've been to many prisons, and I've been to a few fewer but um immigration detention facilities and they pretty much are nearly identical but the rhetoric around what they how they describe it and the officers are like oh you know this is a great facility we have a new basketball court and like we let people have hot dogs once a month (laughs) Um, but i mean but it's very it is a really I mean, they're nearly, you know, it's the same barbed wire. It's the same security that you go through. It's the exact same schedule. It's the same outfits, right? The same, um, um, you know. Yeah, in Tacoma, they are actually color-coordinated by how dangerous they are. Yeah, we, I've, <laughs> I've, that was the same in San Diego, too. Um, do, do you know just how bad conditions are in some of the detention centers? Because I know I've seen multiple news reports of hunger strikes and protests going on at detention centers. And is that true kind of across the board for you know all detention centers in the country or is it are some actually better than others or is it they're all just Um, one shade of bad or another not having actually gone to all of them again obviously say um i can tell you that most of my clients are coming from jail when they're detained and they will tell you that detention in immigration is worse than any jail they've been in um they i got to tour um, I got to tour the Tacoma detention facility and they put you in what they call pods, which are these mm-hmm. giant empty rooms and you just have beds and you just, their, their outside court area is like a tiny concrete triangle that is not even outside. Um, it's covered. Yeah. Um, they do, they will tell you that, you know, they, I mean, they're giving them jobs and like all these good things. But I mean, the reality is your ac- the biggest problem that I believe is your access to resources while you're in there. Mm-hmm. The, they will, you know, do what they can to make sure you can access your attorney or you can access some like, you know, right. And I mean, to, and to clarify too, when you have a job and I don't know if it's the same in immigration, um, in the immigration detention facility, but, you know, at least in most prisons, you know, you get a job and it's like, yeah, of course, great, you get something to do, but you get, I mean, where it's essentially slave labor, right? Like, yeah, they you're get getting paid. 10 cents an hour, you're getting a dollar, like, the the company is actually profiting but, off yeah. of your labor versus... Yeah, it's the same. You, okay. Uh, <laughs> you get, like, a dollar a day type of thing to and, put in. And kind of just related to that, I'm just wondering if we can kind of revisit the um, idea, too, of the private... Um, prison industry and I would I mean you know that's the terminology I would use whether or not that's what other people would use but the private prison industry and why that actually is so problematic um, because I think that's kind of hard to you know I think there are some people that think oh it's great to privatize this it saves 
the state's money. We don't have to give any of our tax dollars to, which I know is not true, but um, it's... I, I want to just tack on yeah. to that. Um, to what, what extent have any uh, hunger strikes or protests been successful at making any positive change? Because it seems like the fact that there are strikes and protests shows that the conditions are bad to, you know, going to Brianne's question about what the conditions uh, actually are. But is there any progress or do we have any hope? <laughs> so, um, to like two of those, it's interesting to say that because today when I was on the phone with a judge from Houston, part of her not wanting to grant my motion to continue was that she wanted to get this case going there because she said she's, quote, on the government's dime. And I really wanted to be like, is she? <laughs> like, you know, the government's not paying for her detention. It's government run. I mean, it's privately run. Um, the reason it's so problematic is the entire immigration system is economically in, like incentivized the entire thing um the you know for any of those of you who like admin law um <laughs> you know immigration <laughs> is the baby of an administrative agency mm -hmm. and they are given money and congress allowed a certain amount of money to dhs as long as they keep a certain amount of beds full so dhs actually has to detain a certain amount of people in every place in order to keep their funding so they, they lose funding if their detainee count goes yep. under a certain yes. quota. So that's horrible. Um, Border Patrol is financed on how many people they catch. So you could, that's why you see um, an MTA as a notice to appear, and that is basically a document you receive when immigration, you know, they've caught you and you have to appear for court. Um, you will have Border Patrol agents give NTAs to like 80 year old ladies, two year old babies, um, people who. It makes absolutely no sense to use government resources to do anything with these people, but Border Patrol gets money for each person that they serve. So uh, that's incentivized, which is horrible. Um, the immigration detention facilities are, again, privatized. When you have everything running on the incentive of making a profit and money, you completely forget that you're dealing with human beings, um, which brings me a little bit to why these hunger strikes, in my opinion, are not working. I think this country's gotten so good at seeing immigrants and especially detained immigrants as not people. Mm -hmm. They are a problem. They are people who came in to steal our jobs, to have our anchor babies, to commit crimes. They are criminals. They are things that are just causing us problems. So when you have immigrants hunger striking, this is where I would almost say that at least U.S. inmates might have a leg up on immigration inmates because, you know, at least U.S. inmates, there are people. Immigrants, they don't care. They literally do not care about inmates that are in immigration detention. I mean, I think it's it's one of those, not one of those populations, the populations that we have that are behind bars are a completely forgotten yeah. population, whether, you know, they're immigrants or they're not. And I think, but for immigrants, you face so many additional barriers. You have language barriers. You don't know, like, no one's, I mean, you don't have a public defender that's going to come in and be able to, like, ensure that you have your rights right like you don't have these same you don't have family members here that can come and like be lobbying um attorneys and be calling organizations like you're in this totally yeah and if you have like just i would say normal but like u.s inmates that are in a state or federal prison if they hunger strike or are starting to protest you have to deal with it mm -hmm. a lot of yeah, times absolutely. people see immigrants like we'll just send them back yeah um, and I know for a while there were a bunch of protesters outside of Tacoma detention facility, which, um, they were standing in front of the gate, which the buses leave from. They unfortunately did not do their research and were protesting on a day when deportations are not done. So, 
you know, maybe some smarter yeah. protesting. But um, I do know when the influx of immigrants came, they set up these facilities along the border that were specifically to detain mothers and children, which, like, you can imagine the outcry, right? Mm-hmm. And actually, the protest did work. They shut one of them down. <laughs> hey, the better than none. There right? is yeah. one that you can look it up, and if anybody ever wants a donator, go help. It's called Dilly. It's okay. in Texas. How's that spelled? D I L L Y. They are still detaining families, moms and children there. And that's where a lot of immigration immigrants, if they have time to go do pro bono work, they go and they take cases. Um, they're still doing it, they're still detaining moms and their kids. And it's really sad. But it like worked a little bit. Before yeah, you know, I mean, and that's that is something that's really frustrating. You know, you know, it's kind of what what can you do next? And I think that that's hopefully we can talk about that in our next you know part well, two. I'm hoping. Oh, if you have one, I, I have one more have, question. Yeah, we've got time for think, one one or two more questions. I've got one more. So why don't you go first? Okay. And I'll, I'll All right, we'll duke in. it out. Maybe they're the same. Um, <laughs> I, I doubt it. Back. Mine's interesting. <laughs> oh, are you go, saying no, that mine's no, boring? Yes. Okay. No, go ahead. No, um, I. I guess my just kind of last question is we talk a lot about how the, you know, money is driving a lot of these systems and the economy is driving a lot of these systems. I'm wondering if you see any implications, particularly of kind of um, race in the immigration system. I know that we talked about how Central America and Mexico happen to be closer and so that there's perhaps more animosity towards those countries because they're, it's easier for, you know, easier in the sense that yeah. it's closer um, for people to get here. But I'm just wondering if you see, you know, we see racism kind of perpetuate throughout so much of the rest of our society and criminal justice system, if you see that same sort of those issues coming across in the immigration system too. Um, I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's definitely racism in the U.S. immigration court system. Um, again, nobody will ever tell you that. Of they will not. say that it's not there. Um, it's different in the sense that whereas you could possibly argue that the U.S. general criminal immigration system is more African-Americans, um, that face, I guess, the brunt of that racism in immigration court, it's probably definitely more of the Latinos. Um, and it's either because they're all assumed to be gang members, Mm -hmm. like most of them. Um, I definitely have judges that always make clients roll up their sleeves, pull up their shirts in court to prove they don't have tattoos. Wow. Um, I know. You're like, oh, dehumanizing. Um... But in the sense that, like, the, I think the biggest part where I ever saw racism in the U.S. immigration court system was when it came even to experts. So, like, immigration court, like a lot of other courts, uses experts to come in and talk about, you know, their knowledge about a certain country. The credibility that a judge will give to a white male expert, even if he's never lived in Mexico, say, example, versus a person who's, like, a university professor from Mexico, they'll give more credibility to the white guy. Um, over the other guy. Once they hear the accent, once they hear where he's from, they just assume that either he's biased or he doesn't know what he's talking about or he's not as smart. Um, it just seems so blatant. That how do they get away with that? Happens well, every day. I know. It's infuriating. <laughs> um, no, it is. Most it really of the is. judges, I... Right now, there is not one single immigration judge of color that I know of in Seattle or Tacoma. Um, there are two women judges in Tacoma and there's one gay judge up in Seattle and they are actually better than the general straight white male judges. Um, but most of these judges are, you know, to be an immigration judge is an admin judge. So all you need is seven years of any law experience. (laughs) And I think it kind of goes to what you were, you know, articulating earlier too, right? Is that there are people just now, I mean, obviously there have been studies for decades about racial bias or implicit bias and 
racism in the criminal justice system, but people are kind of starting to finally recognize that, right? And I feel like the, you know, it's just this forgotten population that nobody looks at in the immigration courts, whereas, you know, the same the same well, issues could be occurring, but and they're as not I'm, paying attention to it. Um, I'm like, I'm sure you see this in criminal, um, like, justice institutionalized racism, but how if you have a poor population and then their English isn't as good, right? Absolutely. So you have immigrants whose English is definitely not good. Um, and it's not just because they have an accent or poor grammar. They literally just cannot speak it. Sure. And that will automatically, people will look down on them. They will take them less seriously. They'll think they're stupid. I see judges yell at clients thinking that they're just stupid, but it's because they just, just need to say repeat. it louder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and again, they just, with Latinos, they just assume they're all coming up here to just cheat the system, get up here, come take our jobs. Like, it's really, you have some better judges. They are getting better. But, like, whenever we have Latino clients, we already know it's automatically going to be a very uphill battle just because they're Latino. Like, when we, like, have clients that are, like, I have a Mongolian client and his case is so bad, but just because he's Mongolian, I know he'll, like, they might, the judge might just assume that he, his country's bad and, like, give it to him. So, it's just, and, like, back, uh, you know, for administrative law, if you remember discretion to administrative agencies mm -hmm. and judges immigration judges like you should do whatever they like <laughs> you pretty much have to argue the abuse of discretion standard which is super hard for them so they can kind of just yeah, it's a pretty high standard yeah. to beat. and that's what it is like it's so, so this actually does tie in a little bit to to my question about racism in the immigration system um and I figured, uh, what, what would a what would this be if, if we didn't talk about Trump at least a little bit? So uh, I, oh, I, I was love to talk about Trump. <laughs> I, um, so not actually about Trump, but his wife, because she's. Um, there's that. an article in that I read just uh, maybe it was earlier today, maybe it was yesterday, but that she uh, was has gotten some heat for talking about immigrants a little bit, and she herself is an immigrant from Eastern Europe somewhere, I believe. I think she's a model. But she's a model, <laughs> right? And that is perhaps a career that is valued in a different way. <laughs> um, but it, it, it seems to highlight that there really are two different immigration systems that really depend on where you're coming from and what you theoretically... What, what your skin tone is and, and what theoretically you offer oh. to our society. Well, that was like not more... Like the clearest place you see that is when you do... Um, consular processing so like people who are coming over as fiancés as husbands wives like doing the quote correct legal process mm -hmm. you see it in the consulates um if you want to come over from france england white european countries right it is for the most part a breeze like it is easy they don't give you problems um it's quick they don't really grill you too much they assume you're coming over to have a good time if you're trying to get through the consular processing of, like, Mexico, Central America, the Middle East, anything like that, like, it is just, it's a nightmare. They assume you're a bad guy. They do so many background checks on you. They, there are a lot of consulates that will try to extort you. Like, it's how, like, and the consulates are, they're U.S. consulates, but they are run, they're supposed to be run by U.S. personnel. They're not always. But, like, you can really see it when you're like, oh, you're coming from Europe? Sure. Like, mm -hmm. we'll just let you go through. Um, And it's just... I just saw the statistic recently. So an overstay is somebody who comes on a visa and then doesn't leave when they're supposed to, right? Um, the largest percentage of overstays is actually white Europeans. I remember we learning that in immigration. Yeah. Um, so like, if, you know, uh, and they just are the ones that like, quote, 
are doing that the most and the u.s like does not i mean i don't say they don't care but they you know you can't be you're not going to be somebody from like italy driving and get pulled over and ask for your papers you're just not <laughs> have you ever seen the movie sorry it just made me think of that and then we should probably wrap up but um there's a great movie called like crazy it's like a romantic love story anyway it's about but it's about a british woman who overstays her visa and that's not even like at all a part of an no. issue in the in the film at uh, all it's just about like their love story and how tragic it must be that they live across and countries and and like just when you were like talking about that and racism we do like there is driving while mexican and we actually do advise clients not who are dark skinned to not drive in certain areas of washington because border patrol will just go by and if you look at all dark skin, they'll pull you over from whatever bullshit these police use, you know, chill light out, yep. it's missing something. Um, but I've never had a client who's been either European or white looking have that happen to them ever. Like, so yes, racism alive and well <laughs> in immigration system. Well, thanks for sharing your insight, Danielle. We're really excited um, to have you here and we're really um, thrilled to be able to talk about our next topic with you in our next episode on asylum. Yeah, so um, this is just um, part one. We will are bringing Danielle back for part two. We're going to specifically talk about asylum and using that as a as a tool. And uh, you can also look at Sidebar online at sidebarthepodcast.wordpress.com. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Just search for Sidebar the Podcast. Thanks for listening.